You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Diamond from the Programs and Publications Department of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us tonight for Writers Live. Tonight we're very excited to have John Merrill. Um, but to introduce him, we're thrilled to have Dr. Lamar Darnell Shields. As the co-founder and senior director of education and innovation at the Cambio Group and former professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Education, Dr. Lamar Darnell Shields has dedicated his life to inspiring adults and youth alike to pursue a higher purpose, achieve sustainable value for long-term success, and cope with adversity in order to create opportunities in their personal, professional, and spiritual lives. And he recently read at the Pratt this year. Um, so please welcome Dr. Shields to share his perspective on Addicted to Reform. My theme music came on for me. That was kind of cool, wasn't it? Uh, good evening. All right. So I, I got to treat you guys like my students. Good evening. Good evening. All right. Y'all like my theme music? It just came on all of a sudden. Um, I am here. I'm just going to introduce John, but I am just so honored. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not originally from uh, Baltimore. I moved here uh, from Chicago years ago. And I taught at the third oldest high school in the country, which is Baltimore City College High School. Uh, what's interesting, after reading John's book, I, I felt like I was an addict all of a sudden, like I was an addict in denial. Uh, and, and, and you'll find that funny once you sort of read the book. But it was an honor to, to be here to introduce him, to, to uh, read his book. Uh, I, I love education. I moved here in the late 90s uh, with a mission to change some of the issues and some of the ills that were taking place in this city while running away from some of the ills and the issues that were taking place in my own city. So I'm going to introduce Mr. Merrill. Um, John Merrill, of course, recently retired. And what I realized, you never really retire from education. Uh, my students, my, my children just received a new principal at their school. And she was a recently retired principal from another school. And she retired, and now she's back at our school. And what happens is, what's interesting in education, you never really retire. So when I looked at this, I said, I don't, I don't think you could ever retire, especially writing a book like this. Of course, we know him from the PBS NewsHour. He founded until 2015, was the president of Learning Matters, a nonprofit media company. In 2012, Merrill became the first journalist to win the prestigious McGraw Prize in Education. He lives with his wife in New York City. Um, during his illustrious four-decade career, and I'm trying to catch up, four-decade career at NPR. Like, the two things about me people don't know. They know I love hip-hop music, but I also love NPR. I'm, I love I love NPR. And as I was reading this, I was, I was comparing John to, like, the, the Jay-Z of education. <laughs> if you know anything about Jay-Z, Jay-Z is a fabulous and amazing storyteller. And when you read this book, you're going to see and hear some of those stories. Um, he's a winner of the George Polk Award, the Peabody Award. And something I just gave you is called the Keeping It Real Award. And, and I just gave you this award because you, you are doing something that a lot of people avoid in education, and it's about being honest. And you don't candy coat some of these issues. 
I know you've received several awards, but when I talk about keeping it real, when I walk into school systems, there's so many people that are constantly lying just to save their butts. And I love that you sort of highlighted some of the good things and also some of the bad things. Uh, he reported on every, from every state in the union. Uh, he talked about and he challenged what we call ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. And then what I love what you did is you sort of gave it a, you know, you gave it a spin. You called it Attention Deficit Disorder. Affection. Affection. It's having a lack of affection. And so in the, and I gave, I had the honor of giving John a copy of my book, and I use a word called Ubuntu, which is a South African term about being connected. And what I discovered from reading your book, because I, too, uh, are fighting the big companies that you're talking about, Big Pharma. You're fighting some of the big businesses. You're fighting some of the charter schools. When you talked about affection, being a former professor in the School of Education, we never talk about how do we then create this intimate relationship with these students. And you sort of lay that out. Now, Merrill distills his best thinking on education into a 12-step approach, which is very, very interesting. You know, I love the way that you talked about being addicted to reform, just like many people are addicted to a variety of different things. Um, John sees a nation desperately in need of recovery from addiction to testing and pouring good money after bad, employing the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous as the organizing principle for his manifesto. He writes, and I quote, I am convinced that we as a nation are hooked on what we hope will be a quick fix. John also states that as with addiction to drugs and other substances, self-deception and an unwillingness to face the past are classic behaviors. The concept of reform is unquestionably addictive. And unfortunately, as with drug addicts, the high is temporary, lasting only until reality intervenes and it becomes clear that the problem persists. I want those out there who are new to listen to John Merrill and those that are old to give Mr. John Merrill a round of applause as he has a conversation of his new book, Addicted to Reform, a 12-step program in education. Thank you. I think I'd rather listen to Lamar. But, uh, but, and this is Lamar's book, uh, Chaos, that, uh, which I, just, I noticed that you signed, and I appreciate that. Thank you. But, uh, um, thank you very much. I, uh, a couple of things about, about Baltimore. Uh, first about Ubuntu. Uh, my wife is on the board of the African Leadership Academy, uh, which is a, a remarkable organization in Johannesburg. We actually just got back from South Africa. Um, and what they're doing, it's a, it's a boarding school for the last two years of high school. And uh, there are kids from every African country. Um, and it's very competitive, tough to get into. There's an entrepreneurial focus. Uh, they have to start a business in their junior and senior year in high school. Uh, they then go to a Western college, perhaps here, perhaps in, in, the, in the UK, um, fully paid. But the commitment is they must go back and work in their native country uh, for five years. Uh, and, and not for, you know, uh, Xerox or uh, McDonald's, but, but for an NGO and is producing some remarkable young men and women. Um, because my wife is on the board, we, we got to know the, the, one of the guys who founded it um, early on, and he stayed with us a few times when we were in California. And it's just a wonderful story about the, what, what leadership can do what, and the power of hope, uh, but also hard work. Um, you know, you can, hope is never enough. But, but in terms of Baltimore, I have a lot of, Great Baltimore memories. I ran my first marathon 
the, ball, the Maryland Marathon. Uh, and I should have stopped at one. I ran about 15 more and now have two artificial knees. But uh, um, I filmed here a bunch of times uh, in Baltimore City and in Baltimore County. Um, I filmed at the high school you mentioned. Uh, I filmed at the school that Michelle Ree taught at before she took the job in, um, in Washington, D.C. Um, and I used to go to Orioles games all the time uh, at the old Memorial Stadium. And I was actually in the park, the new one, the night that Cal Ripken broke his streak. And I should have kept the ticket. <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, um, uh, I, I'm delighted, delighted to be back. Um, I know a little bit about Baltimore public schools. I know they spend more money than virtually every uh, one of the largest, large, 100 large school districts in the country. I think they're, they rank second. There are about 80,600 students. Um, and they've had some, they've had some issues. Um, uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was that the superintendent's driver, because of overtime, made more than the governor. Uh, which <laughs> created a bit of a scandal, uh, but uh, uh, anyway, that's um, it, it's a it's a public school system that that actually would be ripe for trying out the ideas that I put forward in in addicted to reform. And let me say, um, what I'd like to do is is talk a little bit about the book, and then do, we'll do a Q and A if that works for you guys. And I have a couple of video clips that I'll try to squeeze in as well. But um, I, I, I firmly believe that the purpose of school is to help grow adults. So if you unpack those three words, help means it's a team effort. Schools can't do it alone, obviously. Be ar they arrogantly, they used to say, you know, leave your kid at the door, leave the money at the door. We'll take care of it, and you, we, that that doesn't work. So the first to help—that's a process. Grow, it's a process. A test, by the way, is just a snapshot. School is a film. Growing is a process, and sometimes it's two steps forward, two steps back. Um, the people who designed the highways—think about how a highway is designed. It's the car is this wide, the highway is this wide. Now, why is that? That's because when you're driving, you may lose it and you'll go this way, or you'll go off, off course a little bit. The folks who think about school, the kid is this wide and the course is this wide. And if you hear, gotcha, you flunk, gotcha. And, and that's, that doesn't work. We need, we need schools which are designed to get kids to the, to the goal, uh, to the, the other destination. And that's another issue I want to talk about. But the, the third part of that phrase is adults. And that's where we have to have a conversation. What do we want young people to do and to be able to do and to want to do when they are adults? Do we want them to be good at filling in bubbles? Hey, I know the perfect recipe for that. Take a lot of bubble tests. On the other hand, if you want them to be able to make decisions uh, to separate <coughs> fact from fiction, news from fake news, then they have to they have to go through that process in, in school. Um, Aristotle said, uh, rewritten by Will and Ariel Durant, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. We are what we repeatedly do. 
So if you, in school, repeatedly get up, stand in line, sit down, take orders, do this, turn to this page, are you going to be prepared for life in a democratic society? I don't think so. So to help grow adults. Um, Lamar mentioned the 41 years of reporting. I mean, I, I, teachers are the best people in the world, um, flat out. Now, I, it's true I don't know a lot of coal miners, um, so maybe it wouldn't work. But in my, my experience, teachers are terrific people who want to do, who want to make the world a better place. Um, um, the, many of the people working to improve schools are wonderful people. Um, there's some folks who are just trying to make money or w have their ideology win or something, but many of the people who are trying to reform schools are good folks. The, the problem in my, as I see it, as Lamar said, we've become addicted to a, to su a superficial reform. Let me give you two quick examples, uh, and to be nonpartisan, one from the Bush administration, one from the Obama administration. Bush administration is, you know, no child left behind. Um, uh, and the reforms that were put in place are to get the test scores up. So how do you get the test scores up? Well, uh, for poor kids, you have them do practice tests. Um, and to make sure you have time for practice tests, you have to eliminate, you know, unimportant stuff like fill in the blank, art, music, recess, science. Um, and that happened. Um, and to get the test scores up, maybe you also have to cheat. And that happened uh, big time. Um, so, and, and, but test scores went up. And it's, oh, look, the reform worked. We feel great. We're, you know, we got that high that Lamar mentioned. It. And then reality bites when the kids of Alabama, say, where the test scores went way up, the kids then take something called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is given to a, a stratified, randomly drawn sample, not all kids in Alabama. And you see that the national assessment, so-called NAEP scores, are right here. But the Alabama student, their own scores went like this. That happened in state after state. Uh, they had big headlines, test scores up, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the Bush phone superficial reform. The Obama administration made raising the graduation rates its North Star. And the graduation rates went up from about 70% nationally to about 82% now. How'd they do it? They reformed the system. Well, one thing, one good thing happened. You know, the adults recognized that I needed some help, and she came and tutored me after school, and I was able to pass. That's a good thing. I graduated, yeah. But at least three, I have a list here, um, uh, four other things happened, all of which are bad. Um, the first and the most flagrant abuse is something called credit recovery. Um, and credit recovery means basically the kid who's not doing well in English, they say, John, why don't you do credit recovery? Go into that room over there, and you sit in front of a computer, and you take questions and so on and so forth, and do stuff for about a week. Could you either use the microphone sure. or maybe move it? Um, um, sure. I, I can just hold it. That's easy. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, credit. Re sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, credit recovery is the first of these basically phony reforms kid spends a, a week in front of a computer and gets a semester's credit 
for English. He spends another week, gets a semester's credit for biology. Virtually every school district in the country relies on credit recovery to boost their graduation rates. In some districts, 25 to 40% of a kid's credits were earned through credit recovery. Graduation rate went up. Did the kid learn anything? I would say not. Um, a second thing they did, and we did some filming on this, is the school people would say, Lamar, I know you're struggling. Um, you know, the GED would be terrific. It'd be very easy for you to get a GED. There's a GED program right down there, just a couple blocks away. You don't have to drop out of school. Just why don't you go? And you say, oh, okay, because you want your diploma. Now, would, would the school people make sure Lamar got to the No, they just help him out the door. Well, he's gone. The graduation rate goes up. Florida endorsed this widespread when Jeb Bush was governor and beyond. And other states have done that. Um, the, the, another thing that happened is basically the adults cheated. Um, and there's plenty of documentation of that. Uh, Atlanta is the epicenter, but it went on in, in Austin, Texas. It went on in, I think it went on here, as a matter of fact. But it certainly went on in Washington, D.C., which I covered extensively. The adults cheated to help raise the grades. And another thing they did was they essentially lowered standards. The kind of awful triage where um, they would say, uh, well, John never came to class, so we've got to flunk him. On the other hand, Lamar came to class. Now he never said anything, never did any work, but didn't cause any trouble, so you can give him a D minus. Well, you know, you do, you chip away at the standards when you do that, and sooner or later you have kids graduating with phony diplomas. The graduation rate goes up. Now, think about the implications of a phony diploma. Um, and it, it, this is a racially tinged issue because a lot of times the kids who are being treated this way are minority kids who are, be, who are being pushed through, who become numbers. But suppose, you know, I've got a, I've got a deli and I need an employee. And, I, you know, my daughter says to me, hey, Dad, you know, there are a lot of minority kids. Give a minority kid a break. Well, I've never, no, I, I don't, I, come on, Dad. So I say, okay. And black kid comes in with his high school diploma and I hire him. But he's gotten a high school diploma because he's been miseducated. He's been pushed through. He doesn't know anything. It's not his fault. But now he's working for me. First, African-American I've ever spent any time with in my deli, and he can't do run the cash register. So I'm not sophisticated. I can't keep him on the job. Do, am I going to hire another one? kid like that with that skin color? No. Hey, I, I, I've had that experience. That's really damaging. And that's a, that's a corrosive damage that, that uh, is hard to undo for that guy who owns the deli. Oh yeah, I, 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 I had that experience. Um, so this is not some thing that is just damaging to those kids. It actually infects the whole. So that's the, when I talk about addicted to reform, uh, that is, uh, these are bad things that are happening because we are not addressing the significant problem. Now, a 12-step program, um, the, first part of, the first part is to acknowledge the addiction. I need help. And, and if you do read the book, you'll see that I go into some detail about the cost of this addiction, not just to the individual kid who is miseducated, um, 
See, we have schools now. They are set up to sort. And sorting was fine when there were tons of jobs. You could dig ditches and make a, you could go on the line in an auto plant. Those jobs are gone. So we need as many educated people as we can. Um, the, the old school, the, the current school, looks at the kid and basically says, hey, how smart are you? How smart are you? How smart are you? And, and gives a test to figure out how smart you are and so on. And a lot of times they'll factor in your parents' education, your parents' income, and your race, and, but you're sorted. They're not called winners and losers, but that really is what it is. And a certain group of kids um, are given a kind of special treatment. We cannot afford to do that. We have to create schools that look at each kid and say, how are you smart? How, how about you? How are you smart? What are you interested in? What do you care about? What turns you on? And then take advantage of that he's interested in writing. He wants to say things better. Well, let's take advantage of that. He's going to have to read well to do that. And let's make sure he reads a little bit about the history of the country and then writes it. But, but we'll build on. So that's really the, almost the first step, the first major step in transforming a public education. You just simply have to ask the right question. Um, you have to connect. There's a cliche, kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, which is accurate. Um, it's a social and emotional learning. It's a sense of, of being part of a team, being part of a process. Um, I don't want to talk about all 12. You have to start early. I looked up Baltimore. There's not much in the way of pre-kindergarten in Baltimore, as far as I could tell from the little bit of research I did. But that's essential to create vibrant, pre-K programs, and they have to be, the people who create them have to create programs that they would be willing to send their own children and grandchildren to. You can't just have a program for poor people. It doesn't work. You end up with poor programs quite often. Um, I said it, we have to expect more um, because we are what we repeatedly do. I think, I think it's essential that we embrace technology, but very, very carefully. Um, our kids, or in my case, my grandchildren, and I have six, are, are growing up swimming in a sea of technology. It's 24-7. But it's not knowledge. It's simply information. It's there all the time. So how do they separate? How do they figure out what's true? How do they separate wheat from chaff? And we want them to choose the wheat. So we are teaching values. Um, but that's really essential. To, have, to teach kids not to be cynical, but to be skeptical. What do you know? How do you know what you know? Nothing wrong with searching and digging and so on and so forth. Um, I think, you know, the old thing that I grew up with was idle hands do the devil's work. It's now idle thumbs doing the devil's work. And, and, and that I write a fair amount about it because the, the harassment of kids by other kids is a very serious issue. There are, one suicide is one too many, but there are, are quite a few suicides by young, usually young girls who've been harassed by their peers. Now, the, the, the answer to that, the solution to that, 
A lot of adults say, oh, the kids are digital natives. I'm just a visitor. Well, that is half true. They are digital natives. They are not, however, digital citizens. And it's our job as adults to raise citizens. We're growing adults, remember? Help grow adults. So citizenship. Now, but it's not enough to say, don't do that. Don't do that. You have to, you have to engage these young kids. And that goes back to, um, I'd love to show you one clip because there's a fair amount in the book about teaching. I was a teacher um, and I spent all my life with teachers. And, um, and as I said, I have a great deal of respect for, for teachers, but I think the system often does not. Let's see if I can, now, what I want to show you is um, what happened, this is in, in rural Georgia, but it happens all too often in urban schools as well. They can't find a teacher. Teaching is a crummy job. It's not a profession. The definition of a profession is a job where when you have to go to the bathroom, you can get up and go to the bathroom. Teaching is not a profession. Um, but teaching can be made into a great job. And it's, but, but what happens often is they'll just grab, they want a warm body and they say, I want you to teach math. But I, you want your job, go teach math. And this, the, I want you to see how it plays out. See if I can do this correctly. Is that going to do it? How do I make it big screen? I have no idea. Is introduce your new vocabulary words for the week. Just down the hall from Elizabeth Jackson's math class, Shane Miller is in charge of a ninth grade English class. The next word will be strenuous. Strenuous is spelled S-T-R-E-N-O-U-S. Strenuous. That's not how strenuous is spelled but his students might never know it. They dutifully copied his error into their notebooks. Let's look at strenuous. Strenuous. And on some level, that's, that's borderline criminal. That the guy is a, is a phys ed teacher from junior high school, a nice young man. The principal said, Shane, I need a high school math teacher. But sir, I need a high school math And, and he was teaching English and math. Um, there was another teacher in that same film, the same school, who was uh, teaching math. There was another phys ed teacher. This, she was from elementary school. And she was teaching the kids about a square root. And you only, I, I can't remember, it's just mind-boggling how she doesn't understand square root. And so, therefore, her kids don't understand it. Um, so that's the um, that's the context of um, what I want to talk about about teaching. I want to finish with technology and the importance of uh, embracing it. That because the role of a teacher in the schools that I'm thinking about, if schools look at each kid and say, "How are you smart? How are you smart?" and work from there, then. The key is, well, the key is for the kids to do the work. The model that you all have in your head, I suspect, is that teachers are workers and kids are the product. 
schools are producing kids. Well, I don't think that's the way we can afford to think about it. I think you have to think of kids as workers and knowledge as the product. Now, knowledge can't be memorizing the state capitals. I mean, maybe you can do that, but that's all right in your phone right away. So creating knowledge is the, is the issue. So, and let me give you an example. I, I have a bunch of them in the book, um, but I looked out our window. We live in New York City. I looked out the window, and for some reason I noticed there was a garbage can, a trash can on each corner. I don't know why. Oh, no, I, I, the reason I noticed that there were, one corner had two. So there are four corners, and, and there were five trash receptacles, and the place was clean. I was filming in the South Bronx that day, and I took the subway up and uh, got off the subway and walked up, and before I got to the school, I passed a major intersection. Um, there was one trash can, and there was trash. And it just struck me as, whoa, wait a minute. And I thought, well, what if you said to your seventh graders, let's go, let's not call them trash cans, let's call them cleanliness opportunities. Let's go map, let's go map this area and see how many cleanliness opportunities there are. And let's go to that neighborhood and this neighborhood. And let's figure it out. And, and you know, your seventh grade social studies class could do it, but you could call some of your buddies and other seventh grade classes and say, you do it too, and then start sharing the data online. Before too long, your seventh graders would know more about the sanitation, the cleanliness opportunities, et cetera, in Baltimore than any adult, certainly than any of us. Well, what do you do with that information? Suppose you discover that in this well-to-do neighborhood where he lives, there are four, there's one on each corner, but in her neighborhood, there's just one. And you say, well, let's write some letters. So you write to city council, you write Senate, and you ask them to come in. And maybe you do it in other cities. You start sharing the information. These kids are owning all this stuff. This is they go home and tell their parents what they're doing. And if you have kids, how often do your kids come home and say, tell you what they're doing in school? But this is this is creating knowledge, and that is exactly what I think we have to do. Um, so that, and that's how you embrace technology, because they're using the technology to do it. And when they're doing that, they're not going to be sex texting and sexting texting about what a slut so-and-so is or sharing awful stuff and so on. Because be, they won't be too busy to do it, but they'll be, they'll be pretty darn busy. So um, the, the teachers, well, um, along that same line, another step is to embrace outsiders. Uh, how many of you, are any of you teachers? Okay, so we have three teachers. How many of you have children in school? Okay, see, now that's, that's very representative of the entire United States. In, in, in almost every community in the United States, between 75 and 80% of the households do not have kids, school-age kids. So those people vote. Those people have to approve spending for schools. Those people have to be convinced that school is a worthwhile investment because they're not their kids; they're other people's children. Um, so, how do you? What's the best argument for a school? It's those kids who are energized about 
cleanliness opportunities. Well, here's another thing kids can do. And you always have kids working in pairs and teams. You always want projects because that's what life is like when you get out of school. Working together, working cooperatively is the rule of the day when you get outside of school. In school, it's called cheating. Um, you, you have to change that. So, so you have a team of, you say to, you say you, let's, now you're teaching eighth graders, you say to eighth graders, I want you to do film biographies of some of the store owners in the town. And so the team goes, and here's the guy who's got the dry cleaning establishment, but he's from uh, Lithuania, and he's learned, to, and so you, your kids are going to interview him, take video, uh, get, you have to figure out how to do, and, and edit it into a five-minute video about this guy who started a business and so on and so forth, and put it up on YouTube. The, the only criterion would be that he doesn't have any kids in school. So what's going to happen? Everybody who comes into his dry cleaning shop and says, you know, how are you? hey, did you, see the, did you see the video? Well, here, well, let me give you the link. Hey, did you know they were doing stuff like that in school? Wouldn't you like to be a kid? There's one vote uh, for school stuff. And what, what's happening with the kids? Those kids have learned a real set of skills that mean that we will hire them. They'll come out, they'll know how to get him to answer questions, not to mumble, to speak up. And that's not easy, by the way. I mean, you're, seven, you're an eighth grader, you're talking to a grown-up, and he's not saying it clearly. So you have to say, you can't say you're not being clear, because you can't insult him. You have to somehow get him to give it to you again but do it better without telling me he didn't do it well. That's a real skill for a grown-up, for a, for a kid, for a grown-up for that matter. I mean, I learned that, you know, in education, educators speak in jargon, which most of us, most people don't understand. But you can't say stop speaking in jargon. You have to say, I don't understand. And so the, a lot of people I interviewed think I'm the dumbest guy in the, came down the pike. Because three times during the interview, I'd say, huh? And you'd think, I explained it to this idiot. But what happens is you find a better way to say it. And, and you get out of education ease, and suddenly you're speaking real English, and it becomes great television. So, I mean, eighth graders with that skill. Are, and, that, and again, that's part of what we need to do in school because we are what we repeatedly do. Now, the other thing is we can't afford to sort because we simply don't have enough kids. Um, and if you are white, you, you might say, well, I don't, why do I care about those kids? Well, the fact is public schools are now majority-minority. 54%, that happened in 2014. And by 2050, this country will be majority-minority. So two things are happening. America is becoming less white and it's becoming older. So if you sort of do the, do the work this through, um, if you, like me, if you're white, who is going to be fixing the gas leak in my house? Who's going to be tuning up the jet engine, the plane I'm getting on with my grandchildren? 
who's going to be monitoring my IV drip? Well, I want, whoever they are, I want them to be well-educated. So you can't say, I don't need to educate their other people's children. No, it doesn't work at all. I mean, I, had a, I went into septic shock in February, came pretty close to buying the farm. And when I came to, there were 15 people hovering around my hospital bed, and nine of them were non-white. I mean, I, I, I know it's racially it's uncomfortable to have a conversation, but white people will say, oh, I don't want to, you know, they're, uh-uh. No, no, it's in our, everybody's interest. Everybody's interest is train those kids to, is, to become all that they can be. Talent is randomly distributed. It is not distributed by parental income or by race or by geography. It's randomly distributed. Opportunity is not randomly distributed. That's what we need to attend to is seeing that opportunity is there for all these kids. And it's in our own self-interest, our grown-up self-interest uh, to do that. So. Um, a word, just a word about teachers. Now, I don't want to, I'm going on too long here. Uh, a word about teachers. Um, right now, we make it, Lamar was in Teach for America. It's a, a program that has, has accomplished a lot, but has some real, really serious flaws. Um, right now, we are making it much too easy to become a teacher and making it much too hard to be a teacher. And we need to turn that around. We need to raise the bar to get into the field. But then once you're in that, you need to let these people do what they, what they want to do, which is help kids grow. Um, and so there, if people follow this plan, there will be losers, one of which will be the schools of education, um, many schools of education, because right now, um, we have churn in teacher training, in teaching. You know, 40% of teachers leave in the first couple of years. I mean, the number is, the people argue about what the number is, but it's a huge number. So the only faster exodus is in something like prison guards. Um, that, now, who benefits from churn? You know, journalists are trained to, trained to follow the money. Cui bono, who benefits? Well, the beneficiary of churn, if, if my school district loses 40% of its teachers every couple of years, it needs new teachers. Who's producing those new teachers? Schools of education. So if you create a, a field, make it a profession, where people come in, it's harder to get in. But once you're there, it's really satisfying work and you stay, schools of education will go out of business. There are about 4,000 of them in this country. and. Arguably, you could get rid of half of them, and it may not even matter which half. Um, they, you know, it's, it's, for the most part, not particularly uh, challenging, because it hasn't been asked to be challenging. So you need to raise the bar to get in, but once you're in, teachers have to be able to, to try things, to share ideas, to see each other teach. Uh, um, so. Um, by the way, everybody talks about the 1%, you know, the richest 1%. You know who else is 1%? Teachers. One out of every 100 Americans is a teacher. You didn't know that. I mean, I was astounded when I discovered that. One out of every 100 of us is a teacher. Um, so, um, and quickly, we need to measure what matters. We need to measure what we value. 
Right now, we value what we measure. And we measure on the cheap. I mean, I spend more measuring the effectiveness of my used car than a school system spends measuring how a kid is doing. Now, we may spend, add up it because, well, kids measure, 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 because kids take a lot, a lot of tests. But the tests are, uh, for the most part, cheap and simplistic. Um, so, but if you say we're going to measure what we value, you have to have a conversation. What do you value? What do you, what do you want to happen in school? And how would you measure it? I actually think it's fairly simple. If we as a community say, you know, we want art, we want music, we want recess, play is essential. So let's make part of the measurement, part of the question you ask Lamar, the principal, is how many hours of art do your kids have every week? Well, he's no dummy. He knows that a big number is going to be more impressive than a... He knows that an answer of zero is not a very good answer. So he's going to have to attend to what's going on in his school. How many hours of recess do you have? Even asking the question implies that a larger number is better than a smaller number. We don't even ask the question because we haven't stated what we value. I think kids should it'd be wonderful if they, if they didn't learn to play an instrument, that they learn to sing in harmony. So that's another question we'll ask Principal Lamar. How many hours of music your kids have every week? He's no dummy. One hour is not a good answer. So, but then he's got to get together with his teachers and say, let's do these things. So measuring what you value requires a conversation. I think we should also ask him, what's your pupil attendance rate? Now, this is not a gotcha game. What's your teacher turnover rate? It's not a gotcha game. If the answer is a little weak, we're not testing to punish. We are measuring, we are assessing to improve. So if the attendance rate is low, they're bad numbers, well then we want to say, well, what would you, how could we help fix it? We're not going to fire him or do any, that sort of stuff. We're going to see what you can do to fix it. And there are a lot of things that, that, that can improve. Breakfast helps, a good breakfast program helps. A lot of kids, that, sometimes kids, that's their only meal. A parental involvement in the school. Talent shows at a junior high school. So the parents come to the school every other month to see the kids in talent shows. And while they're there, you serve you know, ice cream and stuff like that. So they get comfortable at the school. And that's going to incentivize, terrible word, them to make sure their kids get to. You may want to change, start when school begins. <coughs> Older kids actually need more. But to measure what you value, you have to figure out what it is you value. Um, so I would argue that the unit of importance is the school. Yes, how, the, how the, that kid is doing and that kid is doing matter, but the first thing you have to measure is the school. Because if you start measuring the school, then everybody in that school has skin in the game. We, we are in this absurd situation now where only kids, the only tests are in English and math, but he teaches Spanish. How are we going to measure whether he's doing a good job? Because after all, we don't care about the kids. We don't know whether he's doing a good job. You have this absurd situation where teachers, I'm the English teacher, but he's being judged by how my kids do. And I'm, that's not a lie. 
because we don't have a Spanish test, so we got to have a number for him because we might want to fire him. So we've had this, this, we're so out of whack. But if you say the school is the unit, and we're measuring attendance, we're measuring teacher, we're measuring all these different things, then the Spanish teacher and the English teacher and the math teacher all have skin in the game. How can we make this a better school? Um, there are a lot of things that can be done. But I would also, also argue that there are a lot of things that must be done. And I want to just end with one clip, um, if I can figure out how to do that. I have to get back to the big screen. Slide around. Thank you, Lauren. I use a Mac. That's my... Me too. Which one do you want to hear? It's called New Orleans Kids. Is it NOLA first graders? Yeah, NOLA first graders. Now, before you push the button, um, there was a big program. There was a big program. It was called the Third Grade Reading Effort or something like that. It was headed and actually came out of Baltimore with a... Casey Foundation got behind it. And the idea was that every kid would be reading at, third, at, at, at grade level by third grade. Well, I, I have kids. Um, I, and I spent an awful lot of time with kids. And I know that most kids want to learn to read. I mean, they understand that reading is the currency uh, of, of their life. If they can read, they can, just, they can figure out, but they don't have to have any data. What's that saying? They know if they can figure it out. I mean, it's like walking. Why do kids learn to walk? So they can get from here to there. But schools would teach walking like this. Because you, know, you don't have enough room to do the walking. So, oh, no, that was even step a little harder. But the same thing with reading. When you teach reading, you give kids the opportunity to learn the words they want to know. And they'll learn it. What, what I saw happen time and again you have these first graders reading, and then they, they don't do reading tests in first grade. The reading tests start in third grade. So starting in second grade, they start practicing for the reading test. By third grade, they've taken all the joy out of the reading. Um, and they, you know, they kill curiosity, they kill the natural. You know, we're born learners. These educators who say, I need to get kids ready to learn are so full of crap. And I don't, don't ever trust an educator who talks about getting kids ready to learn, because that means he or she doesn't know what she's talking about. We are born ready to learn. They have ready for school, but we're born ready to learn. By the way, don't, another aside, don't ever trust an educator who talks about the need to be rigorous. Look up rigorous. It means harsh, unyielding, painful, like rigor mortis. Um, Challenging is the word you want. School should be challenging, but it should not be rigorous. It should be the opposite of it. It should be enjoyable. Hard work is not without pleasure. I mean, if I, any case, so one issue in our system is the low expectations. We are what we repeatedly do. If we don't expect much out of him, we ain't going to get much out of him. On the other hand, we expect this, and we help him when he falls down. Chances are a bit there. But so I, I often um, would take over classes. Uh, this particular book is from New Orleans. But um, one way to learn whether kids can read, I discovered, is to put a nonsense sentence on the board. You ask the kids to close their eyes. 
And first, if I ask you to close your eyes, you just do this. But that's not what first graders do. You ask a first grader to close his eyes, they go, <laughs> you know, so it's great video. But, uh, and then I write saw a sentence like, uh, the, the, the green pancake went swimming in the lake and ate a fish. Makes no sense. The green pancake went swimming in the lake and ate a fish. So my reason I put that up there was that if the first graders could read the words, but didn't laugh. They were decoding, but they were not comprehending. And it's really dicey because you know first graders are inherently, at least at first, polite to an old guy with white hair. So they read a sentence, <laughs> and they, which also is great television. But and then when I say is there anything wrong with that, and they, but then as soon as the, the the floodgates open, they all raising their hand, you know how stupid it is. But they would never say that's a stupid story. They just would point out to me a few errors. Pancakes aren't green. Pancakes, you know, so on and so forth. Because they can, they, they want to read, they do learn to read, and it gets beaten out of them by these damn tests. But here's just a little clip, which is a similar kind of uh, thing that... Hit it again, John. Hit it twice? Yeah, hit it what they do? I'm on Mac, you too. Should have played. There we go. Very good. Excellent, excellent job. Again, I took over the class for a few minutes. Okay, who wants to read this one? Jake is really brave. Okay, so let's just have one person read it. Yes. Jake is really brave. Okay, now what does that mean? Yeah. Courageous, that's a good word. First grade. Wow, courageous. Would Miss White's students be able to read and understand Nate the Great? Which is the third grade book. Okay, want to read for me? Nate is really brave. And I found that time again. That you know, we all live up to expectations. In the case of kids, you have this natural advantage. They want to learn. They want to please. They they want to do well. Um, so the potential is there. And frankly, it's criminal to reduce kids to a test score. Um, and just because you only focus on the test score, you are dehumanizing those kids, and you are um, you are devaluing them. You are miseducating. I would argue that we have President Trump instead of President Clinton, in part because we've had this system of sorting schools, of schools that sort, and so many kids have been sorted into a track where their test scores, that's all they want are test scores. And so they go through school and never enjoy it, are never treated as real people except when they do extracurricular activities. They are not, they're not uneducated, they're miseducated, they're not, they don't experience democracy. You don't experience the process of debating back and forth. They're just pushed through. Um, and, and I think you get a, a fair level of resentment of that kind of system. And, and as I say, look, you know, we can afford, maybe we can afford four years, but I don't know how many times you can do that before we destroy our democracy. And the answer is not to denigrate people who voted for Donald Trump. The answer is to properly educate, to look at each person, say, how, how are you smart? 
and it's within our power to do that. And yeah, and let's let's do. Should we just we got a question right here? Yes. I can run the microphone. Oh, okay. I can. I can. I can do it. Well, sure. If you are not, are the kids being exploited? Sure. If the, if you are treating them only as test scores, you're not. You're dehumanizing them. Yes. Yes. And and I, and I, I don't blame the I mean, that the teacher, Mrs. White, you know, had taught those kids to read. Um, I don't blame her at all. But I, I think later on, um, the they are. We, because the system values only that number, the test score, they don't look at you and see you as what you can do, what you might be capable of, what, what you're interested in. Yeah. Any comments, questions? So out of, out of the 40 years of your research and interviewing and filming, um, what, is, what are some places that are getting it right? Um, what, what places are getting right? There are about 100 schools in the country um, that are run by teachers, that are teacher-run schools. They don't have a principal. By the way, principal used to be an adjective, principal teacher. And so that was the lead teacher, in effect. And, and so we, we, about 100 schools have reverted to that. Um, we, we have 100,000 schools, however, so it's a drop in the bucket. There are, there are an awful lot of classrooms that behave the way you know, where these teachers are in effect subversives. And they do their very best to design what they do in the school um, around the idea of recognizing what kids are interested in. I mean, three, I have three children. Uh, two of them were uh, public school teachers in New York City. Um, my middle child, my daughter, who is now 46, um, She's a gifted linguist. She grew up, well, my kids grew up speaking English and Spanish, and she learned several other languages because um, she travels a lot. But she, she was hired to, speak, to teach Italian in Spanish Harlem. So half black, half Spanish. But the kids didn't speak Spanish. They spoke kind of Spanglish. And the school wanted the kids to learn a second language in Italian. So, so she said to the kids, if you learn this much Italian, we'll go out for pizza. On the other hand, if you learn this much, we'll go to a real Italian restaurant with cloth napkins, and you will order in Italian. Well, you know what happened. They started, she panicked, actually, because she didn't, didn't think through how she was going to afford all these lunches and dinners, because um, the kids were falling off the charts. And they were thinking about restaurants. They came to me, and we, did a, we worked out a way to try to raise money. Um, and, she was, all the principal cared about was that her lesson plan be on the left front corner of her desk every day. Has anybody experienced that? It's a, you know, kind of Martinet type teacher. Um, and so she did that. Now, he didn't read the lesson plan. And she probably didn't follow it anyway because it was conversations. What would you order? What's the word for this? And, you know, I mean, just uh, having kids converse. New York City, uh, where she was teaching, has uh, the exams start in mid-May. Schools in New York run to the end of June. The exams are given in a week in the middle of May. So in 
at the beginning of April, the principal came in and said, they throw the class. Ms. Mayor, that's, that's enough Italian. The kids have the math test coming. I want you to spend your class practicing the math test. These are eighth graders. She said, sir, I, I, I am, I'm not, don't do what I say. So the kids glean three basic truths from this. Italian doesn't matter. She doesn't matter. Here's the guy who disrespected her. Only the tests matter. So I mean, she, we were, I was living in the city. We talk a lot. She was just distraught. Because she had been doing the kinds of things you asked about. Um, but she did what she was told. Did it work? Of course not. But the worst part is, so the I say the tests ended May 18th. On May 19th, half the kids just simply stopped coming to school. They, they figured it out. Um, so you have people that, and my daughter quit teaching. Um, the, uh, so you have the people who want to do the kinds of things I'm talking about, who want to recognize, who want to give kids incentive. Um, but you had a, a system which was designed, which understands that kids are products and teachers are workers, and um, you know, and it's, it's doing this sort of. So you really need, really need a revolutionary change. Where could it happen? It could happen in a really lousy school district. It could happen in a really lousy school. Or it could happen in a school or school district with strong leadership. And um, you know, it, it, someone who read my book, there's a lot about one school. The school I told you about with the trash cans that I was on my way to film. Um, because there they had, you know, they, again, these first graders reading, third graders couldn't read with the day. But the first graders, it's in the piece. Some guy, a guy who read my book who has a lot of money called me up, sent me an email and said, Would, could I persuade that principal to adopt the printed ideas in this book? And if so, he would pay for it. So next week I'm going to go see the guy who's the principal. And, and who knows? Uh, uh, it, would be, it would be exciting. And I think you, you, you can't just do one thing. You really have to do, you have to think about ways to do all of them. You have to think about ways to use technology in a healthy way. You have to change the paradigm where, you know, kids are not the product, knowledge is the product. And you'd have to sit down with teachers and say, how are we going to do this? Because you can't, if a principal can't just say, here, do this. Because if the teachers don't own it, it ain't going to happen. So, uh, sir. Why is it that in school, if one copies someone else's work, it's called plagiarism, but in life, it's called collaboration? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I think that's a little bit of an overstatement, but certainly working together um, is encouraged. I mean, television is a team sport. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of radio is less of a team sport, but even there, there's three or four people working together. Do a, put a television hour together, 12, 13, 14 people all working together. Um, so if you can't work together, uh, I mean, 
Precisely, but in school we're not. Yeah. Well, see, I, I, that. I, I strongly support what's called project-based learning. Um, and a couple of wonderful examples. One example from Philadelphia, a public school in Philadelphia's science class, um, the two teachers, or just one teacher, um, basically challenged the kids, working, I think, in teams of two, maybe three. Their, their task was to design an age-appropriate toy for a three-year-old. So it had to be something a three-year-old can manipulate. Um, and then they had to design the campaign to market it to the mom and dads, moms and dads. Well, so what do you have to do there? I mean, this is creating knowledge. These kids, the kids have to go, well, what, what are th how are three-year-olds different from two-year-olds and four-year-olds? Is it significant? You know, what, what can they manipulate? Um, and the beauty of a project like that is there's no right answer. And it's not something the teacher knows the answer to. You know, if it's a, a project like, you know, taking an avocado pit and put it in water, that's, that's not project-based learning. That's something that every damn kid in the world has done in the United States anyway. There have to be projects that the teacher doesn't know the answer to so that the teacher is on a voyage of discovery as well. Um, and that is part of it. So teachers have to give up some control. Teachers have to say, I don't know everything. Yeah. Good question. Uh, I, I work at Wilson High School. I'm a teacher in D.C. In D.C.? My, 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 my kids went there. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions about, uh, I was going to ask you, so I've been in the district for a while, and I worked at, um, I worked with, for the union too. It's, it's really shocking to me how it seems like journalists have been gobsmacked by all the money involved from um, altruists like Rubenstein, uh, who, do, who does the, all the awards for, for, the, for the bonuses for the teachers, he's one of the big, big benefactors. I guess to get to the point, uh, it seems like every critical story is coming up. Some, every critical story during the district goes unheard. And the Washington Post, John Armado, never picks it up. Yes. He says nothing but glorious things to say about this district, which has a lot of malfeasance yeah. and fraud. Yeah. Where are the journals? Are you guys getting pressured into not writing about this stuff? And well, its case is corrupt. The Washington Post is a, is a special case. Um, uh, I lived in Washington for a long time. I kids were at school there. And then I spent three years shadowing Michelle Reed which was a chancellor from 2007 to 2010, and then did a film for Frontline about her. She was a chancellor there. The Washington Post was essentially embedded the editorial page. Um, the, um, the reporter, Annabelle Turk, who was doing some great stuff, was moved off the beat. Um, and it was USA Today that broke the story about the cheating by adults, which is not a local paper. The difference between Washington and Atlanta is, is significant. Washington doesn't have a governor and have a mayor, and nothing above that except Congress, which doesn't care. The mayor hired the chancellor, so he was not interested in figuring out what was going on. The folks loved the chancellor, so they didn't want to know what was going on. Um, uh, I don't, I, I think there is, a, there is, has been a tendency to, to not be skeptical enough. Um, we, 
Lamar and I talked about this story about Ballou High School. Yeah. Um, it's a high school in Washington, D.C., which in June, at last year, the year before its graduation rate was 57%. Last year, it was announced it was 100% graduation. Every kid graduated. And every kid went to accepted the college. Well, you know, that doesn't pass. If something sounds too good to be true, <laughs> it's not. Um, but NPR did a piece about isn't this wonderful 100% uh, in, in June? Uh, and they had a kid who you know, was going to go off to uh, a historic black college. Uh, he was so excited about his music, and, uh, and it was done because of the teachers who worked so hard and they got extra effort. And there were six, 16 kids who were still working on makeup that they'd already been accepted in college. Well, when the thing aired, people, some people like Baloo said, huh? And they started feeding stuff to other reporters. And then NPR basically had to issue a correction. It's a very lame, disappointing correction to look at. And just recently, they did a report uh, about the 100%. And they got, the way they got to 100% was by lying and cheating by the adults. The rules are if you miss 15 days of class, you talk. They have kids who miss 60, 70, 80 days of class and they still pass. Um, so reporters need to be more skeptical. Um, and I think they're becoming, the reporters have a, a way of communicating with each other so they can share stories before they go into print or, or on the air. What do you know about someone who's claiming to them? Well, he claimed that back when he was in Chicago. Be careful. Um, yeah, the, but we don't need. We have. I think we have enough critical stories. Um, there are people who have a vested interest in critical stories. We want basically to tear public education down. Uh, they want to make money in charter schools, um, and they are. I mean, as part of the book, I talk about some of the outrageous stuff going on in charter schools. Um, so, so we need to expose those people. Um, but we also need to, to shine a light on the good stuff. Because um, there is a lot of good stuff. And when you can find teachers who are breaking out of it, you should celebrate them. Uh, I mean, reporter, I think, should celebrate them. Listen, I, I love talking about education. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> you know, Lamar said it right about it. it doesn't get out of here. I'm addicted to that process. One last thing about charter schools. I, the, the idea was born in 1988. Uh, Ash Anker, a union leader, had floated the idea. An education professor named Ray Buddy had floated the idea. And Kenneth Clark. The sociologist who you know, whose name you know from the Supreme Court Brown decision, he even floated an idea for a different way of running schools. But it came to a head in 1988. They brought together a lot of people uh, at a place called Itasca, and they asked me to run the meeting. So I was my introduction to the idea, and I've been following it ever since. It was a great idea. The idea was that every district would have a chartered, chartered school, and they'd try stuff. And then they share the news. Hey, this works. Tell me, you know, that that never happened. Never happened. The unions changed their minds about it. The districts didn't want to give principals power. And so the the term has become totally meaningless. Charter school is, tells you about as much about the school as restaurant tells you about the food you're going to get. 
nothing. You're so free. So you can't say I'm against charter schools. I mean, you can if you want, but it, you're not saying much. Um, you really have to go see what's going on. And that's a shame. Um, but in any case, you, sir, one last. Yeah, since you have like a lot of experience and knowledge about education, where do you think it'll be in 10 years? That's a, uh, I hope I'm around. But, uh, um, there's a, this is a real, what do they call it, an inflection point? Because uh, the folks who've been in the saddle with all these funny reforms, like the D for Democrats for Education Reform, Arnie Duncan, those, uh, those folks, the charter school people, the school choice people, they're in real quantity. Because Betsy DeVos, who is one of a kind, is for charter schools. But she's also for vouchers and really against public schools. But charter schools are public schools. So she's got them, I, mean, she, I don't know if she did it on purpose, if she said smart or, or what, but she's got them really in a quandary because she's saying, I'm going to give more money to charter schools, but I'm going to take a lot of money away from public schools. Well, they're public schools. So they're, they're losing a lot of money. I think this is a terrific opportunity for the folks who, who I would define as progressives, who would argue that you need to look at each kid and say, how are you smart? If you just accept that as a starting point. Anybody who feels that way, this is a great opportunity to come together. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who feel that way. Uh, so if, if that happens, if people come together and start talking about how do you rescue public education, not from, not from DeVos only, but also from um, these reformers, if we, we can rescue it, and we could have wonderfully vibrant schools, and we need them. We need them. Uh, Jim, yeah. One question. So I'm a recent OSI fellow. My fellowship is focusing on youth voices here in Baltimore City. Um, where does youth voices fall within sort of the, the program? Well, youth voices in, in education right now, they're being heard by kids refusing to take the test. 21% uh, of the high school kids in New York State said I'm not, they're not taking the test. And that's changing the way things work. If people are going to opt out. Uh, that's what's going to happen. Opting out. So that's your forces. Um, but I think if you say kids are the workers and knowledge is the product, those are the kids' voices. If the kids are going to produce a documentary about the guy who owns the deli, those are the kids' voices. Those are the kids being heard. They're taking ownership of the material. They, are, they have the means of production in their hands. You get a Marxist on you. But, yeah, I mean, that kids' voices are absolutely essential. Hey, listen, we should go. But thank you so much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.